Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. We would like to get into some listener feedback this season, so if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything even tangentially related to the podcast, you can send an email to Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S, at tracknerds.com, or hit me up on Twitter, where my handle is, at tracknerds. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. So, No Man's Land is a movie I've seen before, and I remember really, oh, enjoying is probably a strong word, because it's pretty dark, but thinking was really good, and it is really good, and I I definitely remember some key things, but also never really fully understood the conflict that it is set in. Yeah. This is my first time watching it, and uh, doing the research for this episode, like, this is probably one of the more complicated geopolitical situations that we've had so far, and especially because it's, it's only, like, I mean, I have this like huge page of notes, like all these things that, you know, happened in this area during this time frame. And it's only from like 1980 to like 1999. And it's just an insane amount of stuff. Right. You could even look at just 90 to 94, 95, and it would be a royal right. list. Yeah. Right. And part of me wonders, too, because this is exceedingly complicated. And we'll try our best to kind of simplify it for everyone, including ourselves. But I wonder to what extent, because we, we've been saying that more and more. So I'm trying to think, is it that all these modern conflicts are that much more complicated? Or is it just because they're more recent, we are more aware of the nuance involved? And you could surely break down Genghis Khan into just as many nuances, especially if you had better, you know, records from the time to actually understand all the the, the geopolitics that weren't necessarily at play or that we weren't necessarily aware of. They were probably just as heavily at play. I think it's a mixture of both. Right. Because I think I think, you know, one, it's it's kind of a recency bias thing, but also because recording things was so much easier and was, you know, so much more common, you know, now in the modern times, like this conflict is, you know, informed a lot by World War Two and even World War One in a way that like wouldn't necessarily trickle down in like an ancient conflict or if it did it would just take a lot longer right that and that's and that's fair and i do want to give a quick rundown of the situation which basically centers on the former nation of yugoslavia so yes yugoslavia first emerged after world war one with kind of the collapse of austria hungary and also some it took uh, some territories to the southeast of that as well and then it existed through world war two when it was actually under the control of the Axis during World yeah. War II. The Nazis and, and the Italians yes. both controlled different parts of it. Yes. And so following World War II, kind of a big national hero for the Yugoslavians was this, uh, I forget his first name, but this Tito fellow who was a kind of USSR buddy. So following the outbreak, of, or sorry, the end of World War II, they're able to reestablish Yugoslavia. We get basically in what it was before the war, but now it's communist and controlled by this Tito guy right. who's buddy-buddy with USSR. And ultimately, though, Yugoslavia, even right after World War One, was this collection of six separate groups, which are going to ultimately lead to part of the problem. So those, and those, they're going to be names you kind of recognize because they're, <laughs> spoiler alert, they're all kind of their own thing today. They're all separate countries now. Right. So the, <laughs> those, those six countries that were all part of Yugoslavia are Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is, again, technically one, Croatia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia, and Slovenia. So things you've heard, but there's a reason those countries weren't at the Olympics until recently because they were all part of Yugoslavia. 
And so yeah. basically through 1980 and even after, Tito did a good job of not letting any nationalistic sentiment within any of those individual countries uh, build to a boiling point. And he just kind of right. always preached that, hey, we are in this together. We are one Yugoslavia and let's have pride in that as opposed to our separate little groups. And it's kind of like what we saw in uh, Afghanistan a couple episodes ago where it's, you know, a kind of a good and a bad. So he was keeping the nationalist sentiment in these ethnic groups to a minimum, but that was because anytime there was even like a little bit of rebellion, he would just go and stomp it out, basically keeping the country peaceful by force. Right. Or like we saw with Saddam Hussein, where once he was gone, the power vacuum. Right, exactly. Although this guy was probably a little more, even though, yes, he was ruthless at times, seemed to be a little more popular than, say, a Saddam might have been in in Iraq. Yeah, yeah. And I think actually, not anymore, but there was even a city in Montenegro named Titograd after President Tito. It's not named that anymore. But. Okay, but they've they've since renamed it. Yeah. So he did die in 1980. And what's kind of interesting is for the most of the 80s, even though he was gone, they kind of mostly carried on as if he was still there. Like his presence still kind of loomed over Yugoslavia. Yeah. And it yeah. wasn't until what we've been talking about in recent weeks with the collapse of the Soviet Union and communism in other countries that then communism started to collapse within Yugoslavia as well. This is kind of a different situation, though, because Yugoslavia was not part of the Soviet Union. Like, they were communists, but they were not part of the but Soviet Union. But neither was Romania. No, right. But they were specifically actually, like, one of the founding members of the non-aligned movement which is a group of countries that was like, we are not going to be with the West or with the USSR. We're going to be our own separate thing. And it's actually okay. still around today. And after the UN, it's the international organization with the most members. Okay, so even though Romania was a separate country, it was a lot more aligned with the Soviet Union, even politically, than Yugoslavia was. Right. Okay. Yugoslavia was not aligned with the with the Soviet. Not they yet, initially yeah. were after World War II because of uh, Tito and his connections with Stalin. OK, but they uh, actually during the Cold War, they were neutral and they um, yeah, okay. they were part of this non-aligned movement. Would that be the only European communist country that would probably fall under that category then with the others all being kind of aligned with the Soviet Union, like East Germany and Romania were a lot more buddy buddy with the Soviet Union? So. It looks like most of the countries in the non-aligned movement, so we're like the only European countries. The rest of the member nations are like African countries, Middle Eastern countries, India, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Okay. A few countries in South America. Okay. Because pretty much the rest of, you know, Europe, West was aligned with, you know, the United States and the eastern part of Europe was with the USSR with the Iron Curtain. Yeah. So basically what kind of set everything up for the powder keg to explode was, again, the Communist Party within Yugoslavia collapses, the economy tanks, and then the nationalism that Tito was able to suppress now is at you know a, a high pitch in all six areas. And so it was only a matter of time before everything just went to hell. And that's basically exactly what happened that you just have all, all the ethnic groups. And it's, it's also complicated, too, because to say the least. Because within each of these six, you know, future countries here, well, there's also ethnic overlap. And it's like, okay, so this yeah. country is mostly this, but there's also a lot of, you know, Serbians in Bosnia. And there's a lot of, and it's just so right. much overlap. And that's, that's where pretty much all of the conflicts arise right. is because of the, you know, ethnic groups wanting autonomy in these different countries. And 
yeah, I mean, it all it all kind of started well in in 1986 when Slobodan Milosevic, who was eventually the president of Serbia, but he was at that time he was a leader of what was called the Serbian League of Communists. So there was the League of Communists in Yugoslavia, and then each country had its own representative in this league. And then there were two autonomous zones in Serbia, Vojvodina and Kosovo, that each had members as well. But in 1986, Slobodan Milosevic basically had this this support and of these uh, protests, and it was called uh, the Rallies of Truth. And they overthrew the independent leaders in Vojvodina and in Kosovo and in Montenegro. And with those leaders overthrown, they basically pro-Serbian rulers were established there. And so that was kind of like the beginning of the end for the League of Communists and, and really for Yugoslavia as a whole, because then in 1990, they had the last meeting and it, it kind of eroded um, because... Is that the, the one they all walked out of? Yeah, so the, the Serbs wanted to stay unified and then the Slovenes wanted to... Uh, they were like the the ones that were uh, really pushing to have all the countries be autonomous. And so it started with the Slovenes and then the Croats walked out and basically the, the whole thing, it was like, all right, this is the end of this, um, which then not that long after, just a few months after in 1991, all six of those countries held multi-party elections. And that was when Croatia and uh, Slovenia both declared, they held referendums and actually declared independence from uh, Yugoslavia, which was then kind of the impetus for the first armed conflict in the region, which was uh, the 10-day war. And it was basically Serbs in Croatia, they kind of got nervous because going back to World War II, Croatia was its own independent country, even though it was, you know, Axis powers that occupied it. It was it was its own country, and there was a Croatian like a, a group of nationalist Croats that aligned themselves with the Nazis that started to basically persecute and commit violence against ethnic Serbs in Croatia, and even like you know d- did genocide against them, just like the Holocaust. It was actually part of the Holocaust. They were actually sent to concentration camps and stuff. So they were kind of these you know the ethnic Serbs in Croatia. I mean that was only not even 50 years before this that we're talking about today. And so it was kind of fresh in their minds. And so they didn't want to uh, be part of Croatia. They wanted to be part of Serbia because they wanted that ethnic solidarity. So is the sad reality, if the various ethnic groups were more concentrated within their respective countries, that we might have just been able to simply divide the borders and it would have been basically a nonviolent separation? And then the overlap is what caused all the issues? Maybe because the same thing. So you have the 10 day war, which is Yugoslavia invading Slovenia after they declared independence. And then so and then in the you have the Bosnian war. Which is again when I when I'm talking about Serbians in the Bosnian War, it's not like Serbians from Serbia; it's ethnic Serbs right. in Bosnia. Right. So that's it's all these countries are a mix, and there's not even like in Bosnia there there isn't even a ethnic group that is a that is a majority. All right, the biggest group is like the 44 percent of the Muslim Bosnians or whatever, right? Yeah. Right. There's there's Bosniaks, but yeah, 43, 44 percent are Bosnian Muslims, but then 30 percent are Serbs right. and 17 percent are Croats, and they they basically all wanted to control their own little areas, and so you have you know the Croatians are supporting the Croats, the Bosnians 
are trying to assert their own authority. Kind of have to assert their own authority over their own country, and the Serbs have the backing of Serbia. Serbia. Oh, wow. It's interesting, too, is this actually is starting to get to the first topics we've even had in this whole project that I remember, at least peripherally, at the time. So, like, mid-90s, well, I'm in, I'm in high school when this stuff's going on, or middle school when it's beginning. But even the name Slobodan Milosevic, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that, because, like, Saturday Night Live would end up parodying or, you know, or mention it or just be on the evening news. Just the name Slobodan yeah. Milosevic is something like, oh, wow, that's like I remember back to, you know, 25 years ago hearing that name a lot. And then the Bosnian War, which you kind of already kind of mentioned, I kind of wrote in my notes here. That's almost like a war that broke out in the middle of a war. Yes. Yeah, it's just yeah, yeah, crazy complicated, which again does now bring us to our movie today, which doesn't deal with specific things. And ultimately, honestly... Even though we've just been talking about this whole dissolution of Yugoslavia, it's it's more of just an anti-war film that could be set in any conflict and just happens to take place during this one. Yeah. But right. we do see and so let's kind of let's kind of set it up. The movie takes place in 1994. We actually know that because there's a part in the movie where it's going back and forth between you see like the Bosnian lines and the Serbian lines. And one guy's one of the I think it was one of the Bosnians is reading a newspaper and he goes, man, it's a shame what's going on in Rwanda. Yes. yes. So we know that this takes place concurrently with uh, Hotel Rwanda in 1994. Yes. Which is probably the probably the first time that's ever happened for us in this project, other than like when we're doing World War Two movies and another World War Two movie. That's different. But this is two completely yeah. separate topics that are happening concurrently. And the movie itself even gives you that clue, which, yeah, is is definitely interesting. Right. And so we know, based on the the newspaper article, and then the fact that the UN guys are there, that this is like 93, 94, because the UN wasn't initially involved. So just to kind of give a little background to this actual conflict. So we talked about before how the there's the there's the three major ethnic groups in Bosnia, the Bosniaks, the Serbs and the Croats, and in that order for, you know, how big they are. So 40-ish percent Bosniaks, 30-ish percent Serbs, and about 17 percent Croats. While all of these countries were having these votes for independence, Bosnian Serbs said, well, we don't want Bosnia to attempt to get its independence. Um, we want to remain part of Yugoslavia. But Bosnia-Herzegovina held a referendum anyway, and it actually, it was like 99 point something percent voted to leave. Um, that's because all of the Bosnians and Croats voted to leave, but the Serbs all boycotted the election. Right. So, <laughs> but then, so the day after that vote took place, there was a Serb that was killed by a Bosniak. Like this, a, you know, a murder basically happened. So the Bosnian Serbs used that as an excuse to occupy Sarajevo and set up roadblocks throughout the city and basically exerted military control over Sarajevo, which is the capital, and said, you know, Bosnia-Herzegovina is not going to be its own country. We're going to remain part of uh, Yugoslavia. Well, actually, I, I take that back. They didn't want to remain part of Yugoslavia. They wanted to set up their own country called the Republic of Srpska. Oh, right. Yeah, I saw those maps. Yeah. Yeah. And then they also wanted, uh, or they, they also then, they absorbed, so all of the Bosnian Serbs that were in the Yugoslav military, they said, now you're in the Bosnian Serb military. So they basically got their own army as well. And then, so on April 27th, 1992, that was when the uh, what was called the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, 
which was those six countries that we talked about before, they had a new constitution and they became the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, which was only Serbia and Montenegro. So Bosnian Serbs took control of the Serb-majority areas in Bosnia and then started mortar attacks on Sarajevo. And that city was basically shelled on a regular basis for over three years, almost four years, which is all all these forces are under the command of a guy named Ratko Mladic, who actually wasn't arrested for war crimes until 2011. Huh. And that's and Sarajevo then is why that's that's why that city is so seared into my memory, because just hearing it on yes. the news for three straight years over and over and over again, more from Sarajevo, yep. more in Sarajevo. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. And, and they were, you know, shelling areas that they knew were going to be populated heavily by civilians. So they would shell like markets. They would shell. Uh, so they they cut off all of the uh, the main water supply to the city. And then the UN set up like water points, like water collection points, and then they would shoot mortars at them and try and kill as many civilians as possible. And it was literally thousands of, of civilians killed throughout the course of this war. Right. This conflict is kind of famous for just war crimes after war crimes on both sides. And everyone was just like, no, we don't care about any rules of engagement. Like this right. war crime city going on here. Yeah. So then while all of this is going on... <laughs> At the same time, uh, we had talked about the Croats before being the other. Uh, the, so the, the main the main conflict here is between the Serbs and the Bosniaks, but the right. Croats we also mentioned before. It's kind of like the third party in Bosnia, yeah. right? They were initially aligned with the Bosniaks, like, "Hey, we're going to help you. We have this common enemy in the Serbs. They want to, you know, they're trying to turn us into this Republic of Srpska." Well, as the war kind of continued, Croatia began to get more began to get stronger militarily. So then the Croats then basically said, all right, uh, Bosniaks, you're on your own. We want to set up our own country called the Croatian Republic of Herzeg Bosnia. And they got backing from Croatia, who also was then invading the Serb-majority controlled areas of Croatia and kicking Serbs out back to Serbia. And they were like, so there were Serbian villages that had existed in these areas for centuries, like hundreds of years. And the Croats went and kicked all the Serbians out and then would completely destroy the villages, just burn them to the ground so that they wouldn't come back. So that was all going on at the same time that this is going on. So that was kind of when the UN came in and declared all Muslim areas or, or areas that were Bosniak, they declared them safe areas. And they devised this plan or the West devised a plan called the Vance Owen Plan. And basically the plan was, all right, we're going to divide the country up into 10 provinces, three for Bosniaks, three for Serbs, and three for Croats. And then one is going to be like a neutral area for Sarajevo, the capital. Not dissimilar from how like Israel is set up, where you have like areas for Israel and areas for Palestine, and then Jerusalem is supposed to be like a neutral zone. Right. Basically, they were going to try to do the same thing. Um, but the Serbs said, well, why would we do that when we already control over two thirds of the country? We would have to give up a bunch of our territory that we've already conquered to put that plan into effect. And we're the strongest, you know, military force here. So why would we do that? And so that plan kind of broke down, even though the Bosniaks and the Croats were both on board. Uh, the Serbs didn't want to give up the required land to put that into effect. So then we get into 1994 when you actually get 
the NATO intervention, basically because it was kind of like a trading of jabs between the Bosnian Serbs and NATO forces. So like the Bosnian Serbs, they mortared a market, killed like 60-something civilians. So then NATO said, you know, you need to take all of your artillery and mortars away from Sarajevo within 10 days. And the uh, Serbs said, no, uh, you can't make us. We refuse. You know, you can't bully us west. So they conducted some airstrikes against uh, a command post, which then the Serbs responded to by mortaring a hospital. And then they captured a bunch of like a a bunch of U.N. peacekeepers. And then uh, they perpetrated what was called the massacre of Srebrenica, which was a UN safe zone. Um, it was a whole town, and the Bosnian Serbs went in, and they initially said that they were, you know, they were going to let everybody go, but then they just murdered like eight thousand people and buried them in mass graves. I mean, it's like the worst genocide to happen in Europe since the Holocaust. Oh wow! And so that was that was when NATO then said all right, gloves are off, and started basically this huge bombing campaign against the, the Serbs, which is kind of what turned the tide in favor of the Bosniaks. And I have in my notes here that the NATO bombing wasn't even with proper approval, that they kind of did it, but didn't have the full backing of the UN when they did it, or, or with, or be, I don't know, basically it was almost like they overstepped their bounds when they started bombing. Yeah, it's kind of like the opposite of what happened in Rwanda. Basically, genocide and they said all right we don't really like we're gonna kind of uh take some shortcuts here probably you know do this these bombing campaigns that that aren't uh, we don't have all of the proper approvals that we probably need but there's genocide happening like thousands of civilians being murdered by the day the body counts grow higher we don't have time so for approval let's, kind of thing, yeah. right so let's uh let's just kind of get this over with and then I guess, what's the relationship with all this going on between the UN and NATO? They're basically two independent organizations, but with similar interests that are both wanting to help. Right. Well, NATO is all, it's all Western powers, basically. Right. Whereas the UN is more worldwide. Okay. Right. And right. And the UN is pretty much every country in the world. So the UN was there at, you know, humanitarian and peacekeeping mission Whereas NATO is actually, you know, it's an actual military alliance. So like, you know, the, the UN, like they have not really military forces, but it's more paramilitary forces. Like they're armed, but they're not, um, they're not there to, you know, fight battles or, or conduct combat operations. Basically, their job is to do what we see them do in the movie, like humanitarian stuff, rescuing people, getting them help. Whereas NATO has fewer people to ask and can get involved quicker without. Right. Yeah, because it's it's only a it's it's a military organization formed after World War II, basically to be the alliance of all these Western nations against the Soviets. Okay. So here you have them coming together to help the Bosniaks by doing uh, bombing campaigns against the the Bosnian Serbs, which we don't see NATO at all in the movie, unlike the UN, no. which we do see. Right, and so my note here I wrote was that mostly the U.S. presence is all talk because they're not able to actually to do as much as they would like to do because like kind of like you said Serbia just says we don't care what you're saying so again the movie itself could be set during any conflict but they create a scenario in which in this trench that looks very reminiscent of a trench you would have seen during World War One, and you end up with a Bosniak 
and a Serb are in this trench together. And it's actually kind of interesting. So first the, oh, I kind of forget the order here. And actually, remind me too, I actually wrote it down here. The bald guy is the Serb, and then the guy with the Rolling Stone shirt is the Bosnian. Yeah. So the Serbian comes in with an older guy, and they booby-trap this, what they believe, is a corpse and they notice a gun and they kind of are just kind of checking it out see if anybody's been here meanwhile the serbian guy is hiding and he grabs the gun when they're not looking and then they notice the gun is gone and so he actually shoots both of them kills the older serbian and then the younger bald serbian is shot in the stomach and the bosnian guy had earlier been shot in the shoulder so they're both injured and then about this time as they're kind of at a stalemate they realize that the bosnian corpse on the ground that has a mine under him is actually alive and yeah and he now can't move because if he moves it's a mine that basically once you press it down it's engaged which his body weight has done that and if he moves at all it'll release that pressure and detonate the bomb which they say is this bouncing mine that'll basically destroy everything within like a 50 yard radius so killing everybody yes. in the trench, including the guy, the bombs on top of. So the movie is really about that situation. How do we get this guy to safety? How do we let the UN know or both sides know? Because we're basically in no man's land, hence the title of the film. And they don't right. want either side to kill the other one. So at one point, the Serbian guy even wants to escape with the UN. And the Bosnian literally shoots him in the back of the leg. So he has to stay so the Serbians don't yep. start shooting, attacking their location. Ultimately, it's an anti-war film, just kind of dealing with the futility of all these conflicts. And then the guys even are arguing literally at gunpoint over whose side started the conflict. And honestly, yes. I guess as a viewer and a, you know doing the research, we would have to say, yeah, you're both probably right and you both suck. It's, it's the, like you said, the Reddit thread or whatever, the everybody sucks here situation. Yes. And I love movies like this where... You know, you have this like this huge, super complicated, like big geopolitical mess of a war. And like instead of making a movie about like all of the, you know, like the big like, you know, from like a top down look, it's like just this little kind of like very human, you know, small interaction between these three guys. And like to them, really, like none of the rest of the war even really matters. They're just trying to get out of this trench without getting killed but all the same baggage is there and yeah the, the conflict within yeah. the trench serves as a perfect microcosm for everything that's going on and again to speak to the whole whole project we're doing here with going through world history with a series of movies i think this is a excellent excellent choice that even if it doesn't get into all the details we did which is setting everything up it still throws yeah. you in the world and everything we've talked about, even if the you as a viewer of this film don't know it, these characters are bringing all that baggage to the table. Yep. And it's just heartbreaking in so many ways. And then just frustrating from an intellectual level of why can't we just do better? And I wrote too that the language barrier is actually a major issue here with the UN guy that comes in, they were mostly dealing with French UN members. So he's doing, he, the, the French guy speaks English and French, but he doesn't speak. I don't even know what language are they speaking? Bosnian, Serbian? Yugos, what's the language that they'd be speaking here? Yugoslavian? Um, I don't know. Because the Bosnian and the Serbian both speak the same language, or at least share a language. And so they can communicate with each other, and the, uh, the Serbian can communicate with the French guy in English. 
And then you have the English reporter who speaks French and English, so she can communicate with the Serbian. But And then the, then there's the German bomb diffuser that comes in, and he only speaks German and English, so he can't talk to the guys who he's trying to save either. And it's it'd be funny if it wasn't so dire of a situation. So it looks like the language, there's several names for it. It's a South Slavic language, but it's called... Serbo-Croatian or Serbo-Croat or Serbo-Croat-Bosnian or Bosnian-Croatian-Serbian or Bosnian-Croatian-Montenegrin-Serbian. So it's basically just this common language that these southern and, and western countries in what is, you know, the former Yugoslavia is what they speak. But it doesn't have a common name? It's just this amalgamation of all the groups? It's called any one of those, and it probably depends on where you're from. That's so bizarre. What you call it. That's so bizarre. Yeah. What would they call it in school? <laughs> like if you're going to like I, English class, like know. we would I, do, yeah. I wonder if they're like those are just the English names. Like I wonder if they have a name for it. Oh, interesting. Okay, that is kind of curious. And the only other really note I have here, and we we'll get to kind of the we'll go ahead and spoil the movie. Although I highly recommend everybody watch it. But so the I think I had been conflating in my mind the term ethnic cleansing with genocide. And yes, genocide can be an aspect of ethnic cleansing, but kind of to what we were talking about with the borders and all of the overlap, basically ethnic cleansing is just tidying all that up. It's like, oh, you're Serbians in Bosnia? Well, we're going to forcibly remove you over to here. And basically just let's, let's get everybody back on the lines where their side actually belongs. Although that also included, like you said, a lot of killing and genocide. And also a phrase that I was just cringing to read on wikipedia here in a phrase i wasn't hoping to ever cross but systemic mass rape on both sides was a an aspect to this and it doesn't go into any more detail than that but again you can just kind of presume it's the whole i was thinking to the braveheart thing it's like if we can't you know get rid of the scots we'll breed them out and basically and so it's kind of part of that as well sadly and so and again both sides were were guilty of it. It does say mostly the Serbs, which kind of goes to what you're talking about with them being kind of very combative against the UN and NATO. And just kind of, they're like, we're the stronger ones. We're just going to do whatever the heck we want. And no one's going to come in from the outside and say otherwise. They were the ones that seems like doing, doing most of the ethnic cleansing and, and the rape. But that's not to say that wasn't going on on the other side too. Right. We're kind of going all over the place topic-wise here. But one of the things that I really liked was in the movie specifically is how the power dynamic changes between the two main guys. So like at the very beginning, like, so the Bosnian has a gun trained on the Serb the whole time. Well, then he ends up kind of catching the other guy, you know, taking advantage of, of when he's, you know, not really paying attention and gets a gun and gets him to drop his gun. And then the, uh, the guy on the ground asks the Serbian guy for like a drink of water or something and then grabs him and says, all right, you need to drop your gun and tells the other Bosnian to pick up a gun, or otherwise, you know, I'm going to roll off this mine. It's going to blow us all up. I thought that was like really creative on the part of the writers how yes. they came up with the totally plausible, totally believable. None of it's contrived. None of it's you know Dave's ex machina. Like it's all real and earned. And it just that that power dynamic shifting back and forth. I thought was really cool. Yes. So ultimately, again, they're kind of they're kind of helpless here in the trench. They are trying to communicate to the UN that they need help. UN finally understands what's going on. Of course, the UN is being pestered by the Western media that's trying to just, you know, get the scoop. Any kind of change is a story, and they they got their own agenda with, you know, trying to hit deadlines and make, you know, get ratings and all that. 
and the bomb expert comes in. It's nearing the end of the movie. You're starting to think, okay, finally, we're going to get to this. And then the German bomb expert says, he's screwed. We cannot, the way it's situated with the rock around him and everything, we can't get to the mine. He's he's already dead, and he doesn't know it yet. Yeah. And they're having this discussion yep. right in front of the guy who doesn't speak their language. Yeah. They're, they're speaking in English, and this guy doesn't speak a word of English. And so he has no idea. They've just said he's dead. And then to hide the fact of all that from the media, they fake it. They basically say, yep, he's saved. And they take basically a fake body. Do they even have a real body? Is it the old guy, maybe? They grabbed it. They grab the the guy that got shot to death at the beginning of the yes. movie, the guy who planted the bomb. They yes. pull him, they pull his body out, and they put a blanket over it, and they say, yep. "All right, here's the guy. We're taking him to get help at the hospital." Yep, you can talk to him later. Okay, everybody, now you better leave. This area's not safe anymore. And then the media actually falls for it, and the the, the cameraman even asks the British journalist, "You want me to go ahead and just like get some B roll of the of the trench?" She's like, eh, whatever. You know, I see one trench, you see them all. Not realizing yep. the UN was lying and that guy's still laying there on the mine. If they would have just walked out, they would have noticed that. Yep. And the movie ends with a shot from directly above this guy laying on a mine. We don't see him panicking. He doesn't seem to be fully aware what's going on. But at some, time, at some point, he's got to recognize everybody was here to help me. And now everybody's left and it's completely silent. It, that's the end of the movie. I mean, he just at some point he will just either just die laying on that mine or he will roll off and take his chances that on the what one percent chance that it's a dud and he you know doesn't blow up but he's he's kind of the dead man walking the dead man just laying there and he's just and the, and the, the isolation of that is a kind of a poignant moment there too yeah and we didn't even talk about too then the the two guys that have been fighting this whole time end up killing each other while in UN. Not, they're not in custody per se but right basically they're being separated basically to, to keep them from <laughs> fighting i think and then right right the guy pulls out a gun they basically both get guns and shoot at each other and kill each other yeah yep well the the bosnian guy shoots the serb and then one of the french un guys shoots the bosnian yeah yeah it's, it's a mess but again it's a, it's a really really good movie this is like when you think about it, and some of them only last for a couple seconds, but like this has quite a few Mexican standoffs in it. It does, yeah. Which, you know, as a uh, Tarantino guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I definitely appreciate And uh, so we mentioned the movie won Best Foreign Film at the Oscars, and it's a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes on both the audience and the critic side. And little note here even says, bleak and darkly humorous, No Man's Land vividly, vividly illustrates the absurdity of war, which I think, yes, yeah, probably a, a good way to sum it up. It's just a strong, engaging, powerful movie that we highly recommend. Definitely not even, it, it transcends the whole movie vegetable thing. This is a movie I think you yes. will enjoy, even if it wasn't, quote, one you needed to watch just for its own sake. Yep. And it's really, it's at least the, the copy that I watched, the subtitles were not hard to read. They were a decent size. They were actually yellow, which I thought was oh, <laughs> nice. Um, made it a little easier to read. But it's also sometimes when you watch foreign movies, you'll have foreign actors playing Brits or French or Americans, and they'll have an accent that's maybe a little bit off. But in this movie, like the Brits are played by Brits, the French are played by French guys, the Bosnians are played by Bosnians. Like everyone is the way that they're talking 
like the language barrier is, is a big deal, but like the German guy's actually German. You know, they they kind of went that extra step to make sure that it was authentic. Yes, it definitely feels authentic and it has that kind of just international feel to the filmmaking as well. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So how did this kind of resolve itself? When, when did kind of the fighting end? And then in these countries all, are all obviously all autonomous today. Right. So this conflict specifically, once the the bombing started, it kind of turned the tide in favor of the Bosniaks. So all the parties involved, so you had the, the Bosnian Serbs, the Croats, the Bosniaks, and then the Yugoslav you know, uh, heads of state all met in Dayton, Ohio, mm. of all places, and had peace talks. And they kept Bosnia-Herzegovina as one country, but it's made up of two different kind of provinces, I guess you would say, or states. Um, one is the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, and the other one is the Republic of Srpska. So even today, there's a there is still you know official boundaries for these two countries or there, these two states, but they're both part of the same country. Um, and then as far as uh, Yugoslavia on the whole, the Bosnian War is only the second to last conflict in this area. The last one was the the war in Kosovo, which I guess I never really thought about as being different. I honestly thought that like Kosovo and Bosnia were all kind of part of the same conflict, which in a way they kind of are, but they're they're definitely separate from each other. Kosovo is a I guess depending on how your country views what happened at the end of this conflict, Kosovo either was or is a province of Serbia. It's a majority ethnic Albanian. They wanted independence from Serbia. So they wanted independence. Serbia refused. Kosovo was actually backed by NATO in that conflict. So they won the war in 1999. And then in 2008, they declared their independence. However, that conflict is is still technically not finalized. It's unresolved because they don't have the international recognition to like be a UN member or anything. Only 108 UN members recognize Kosovo as its own country, which actually, if you look on Google Maps, you can see the border of Kosovo, but it's a dotted line. Right, because it's not necessarily... Here's where Kosovo is, but it's it either, you know, like I said, depending on what country you're in, it, it either was a province of Serbia or it's now its own country. Which would be similar to like Taiwan, right? Yeah, kind of like kind of like Taiwan. Or uh, I don't know if we... There's been others like that, but yeah. There's a, there's a bunch. There's a bunch of places like that all over the world, but yeah. And so what we really didn't talk about either, though, is we've been kind of focusing, we mentioned those initial six parts of Yugoslavia. We've kind of only mentioned that, yeah, the other ones kind of broke off at different points. Right. So they, they, they broke off at different points throughout this, which we kind of talked about. Slovenia, Croatia had, had declared independence before Bosnia. Bosnia split apart. Um, Macedonia is now its own country, which is called North Macedonia. And Serbia and Montenegro were the last two countries to break apart. And that was in the mid-2000s. And so now... Today, all of those six countries are, well, seven. If you count Kosovo, yeah. Kosovo, which I'm American, so I do. (laughs) They're all their own separate countries now. So basically, this area that had been, which, you know, sometimes you hear this area called the Balkans or the former Yugoslavia, but basically, this part of the the world used to be one country altogether, and now it's seven seven separate countries. Yeah, and it just had a violent separation that blew up during the 1990s, yes. 
Right. And right. is mostly stable, I guess, now today, right? Actually, I even saw a video yes. that mentioned that it's like, yeah, other than Kosovo being kind of poor, most of them are fine places you can visit. And it's it's yep. all kind of under control now. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, like when I was in Afghanistan, like there are Croatians and Bosnians and Montenegrins, like all they're like all there supporting like the ISAF mission. So I think they do get along to a certain extent. But there are definitely like even to this day, there are like Serbian hardline right wing people who think that like Ratko Mladic is like a national hero to them. Mm -hmm. The guy who massacred tens of thousands of people because, oh, well, they were all Bosnian Muslims. So it's good that he killed them because ethnic cleansing. He was just trying to get he was trying to get more for uh, Serbs. So there is there are still definitely like nationalist sentiments in these areas. Right, right. Nothing's ever going to be perfect. It's, right. Politically, it's right. Politically, there it's, it's, it's peaceful. Yeah. OK, yeah. So hopefully. Well, OK, we know that was confusing, but hopefully it wasn't boring. And next week, we're going to go for a smaller story that will be much simpler to kind of follow. And we're going to be looking at the right to die dealing specifically with the film The Sea Inside, starring Javier Bardem. <laughs>